WNYC in New York. This is Bob Garfield with special on-the-media coverage of a late-breaking development. Last month, Rolling Stone published an explosive 9,000-word feature titled A Rape on Campus, A Brutal Assault and Struggle for Justice at UVA. The author, Sabrina Rubin Erdley, opened with a terrifying description of a female college freshman being raped by seven University of Virginia fraternity brothers and pledges. The story portrayed not just a brutal crime, but a woeful administration response bordering on obstruction of justice and an unreconstructed UVA rape culture. But at its core, Erdley's article was about a single event, a ritualistic gang rape told by a single source, the victim, nicknamed Jackie. Here was Erdley describing her sensational scoop on PBS NewsHour. When I first encountered Jackie, I was absolutely shocked by her story. Um, She um, went to the administration and told them that she had been gang raped um, at a fraternity house by seven men while two others watched. Uh, And the administration did nothing about it. The story was simultaneously terrifying and unsurprising conforming with previous reporting on campus sexual assaults and with the Bacchanal culture of UVA, where drinking and seduction are so woven into campus tradition, they are immortalized in the school's signature drinking song, Rugby Road. The song is named for UVA's Fraternity Row, and here's one salient stanza. All you girls from Mary Washington and RMWC, never let a Virginia man an inch above your knee. He'll take you to his fraternity house, and he'll fill you full of beer, and soon you'll be the mother of a bastard cavalier. The Rolling Stone article reverberated far and wide. The injustice was unspeakable, the rage palpable, and the media reaction swift. In the article, a student named Jackie says she was gang raped and that friends and a university dean later discouraged her from going to police. Plus, a student comes forward telling Rolling Stone magazine she was gang raped at a University of Virginia frat party. So how come we didn't hear about this? How come the school didn't tell anybody? Are they covering it up? After the explosive allegations of sexual assault at the university, all a reaction to the Rolling Stone investigation detailing, quote, a culture of rape at UVA with very disturbing details. this morning. Reaction from the university administration, accused in the piece of suppressing justice to protect its own reputation, was swift and dramatic as well. The story in Rolling Stone is shocking. UVA President Teresa Sullivan addressing reporters November 25th. My initial reaction was numbness, but the numbness then turned to anger and a deep grief for the survivors. I want to make it perfectly clear to you and to the watching world that nothing is more important to me than the safety of our students, not our reputation, not our success, and not our history or our tradition. If there are systemic problems, they must be rooted out. With that, Sullivan suspended all of the campus's fraternities pending a full investigation. But then came an unexpected twist. Erdley had never spoken to any of the seven young men accused by Jackie as attackers. 
nor could she provide a coherent explanation as to why to Hannah Rosen on Slate's Double X Gabfest podcast. Did they try and contact you? Did you try and call them? Like, was there any communication between you and them? Uh, yeah, I, I reached out to um, I reached out to them in multiple ways. It, they were kind of hard to get in touch with because their their contact page was um, was pretty outdated. But I wound up speaking. I wound up getting in touch with their local president, um, mm-hmm. who sent me an email, um, and uh, and then I talked with their sort of their national guy, who's kind of like their crisis their national crisis manager. You know, they but were not both, the I mean, actual were, boys. Like they're both helpful in their own way, I guess. You know, I mean, all they they were all they really said was, you know, this is a they they both claimed to have been really shocked by the allegations when they were told by the university, and they mm-hmm. both said that this is a really tragic thing. And uh, you know, if only we had more information, we could look into it. And you know, that's the end of that. <laughs> No, it wasn't the end of that. The press and others, including lawyers for the accused fraternity, continued to tug at loose ends. And by Friday morning, the whole sordid narrative began to unravel. Here was CNN reporting on a retraction written by Rolling Stone managing editor Will Dana. Rolling Stone has put this apology on its website. It's, it's uh, multiple paragraphs here. Let me just read part of it for you. Uh, the final graph reads this way. In the face of new information, there now appear to be discrepancies in Jackie's account, and we have come to the conclusion that our trust in her was misplaced. It goes on. We were trying to be sensitive to the unfair shame and humiliation many women feel after a sexual assault and now regret the decision to not contact the alleged assaulters to get their account. Double X podcast host Hannah Rosen joins me now. Hannah, welcome back to On the Media. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with this. We are not at the moment certain whether the Jackie we've read about is exaggerating an incident, is inventing the episode out of whole cloth, or I suppose worst of all for victims of rape everywhere, fabricating a rape narrative to camouflage a consensual liaison she wound up regretting, or none of the above. We don't know. But we do know that the Rolling Stones story is looking shakier by the minute. Can you run down the revelations? So here are some of the discrepancies we know so far. She had described this person as a member of Phi Kappa Psi. She gave a few details about him in the story, and they called him by the pseudonym Drew. First of all, there was no member of Phi Kappa Psi who worked as a lifeguard, which is where she said they'd met each other. They were both lifeguards. There was no party that took place on that night. And then she finally did give a name. It appears that she didn't give the name originally I think, to Rolling Stone. I mean, I'll tell you, the details are emerging. And when the Washington Post contacted that person, first of all, he was not a member of the fraternity. And second of all, he said he didn't really know her and he had never certainly gone on a date with her. That's all we know so far. Again, we don't know what that means or who's telling the truth or, you know, maybe she thought he was a member of the fraternity. It's just we don't have all the details yet. It is the most basic journalism that when an allegation is made, You go to the alleged culprit and you get his or her side of the story. Yes. We as journalists generally, if you're going to accuse someone of anything really from minor to major, you want to get that person's response to your accusation. 
first of all, it's only fair that they know the story's coming. Nobody should wake up in the morning and read a story about themselves that they had no opportunity to rebut. Second of all, it gets you closer to the truth. The person might add details, detract details. The thing the person says might make them look more guilty. You never know. So you won't really have the full story. And third, it's just a question of fairness in the sense that everybody should get to have their say. I mean, it's a constitutional right. It's a journalistic ethic. People should be able to defend themselves. And the reader should be able to evaluate based on the testimony of all the principals. Yes. Tell me why she deferred, she said, to Jackie's wishes not to locate and question these young men. She didn't explicitly say it, but I think it became clear during the course of interviews that the Rolling Stone reporter had told Jackie or that they had some understanding that she wasn't going to try and contact the alleged assailants because, as she said it, that made Jackie very anxious and Jackie would have backed out of the story if she said she was going to contact them. It sounds strange, but you can understand in survivor culture, there's a sense that the woman has to regain control of her own story. So a lot of the people who knew her from this community said, well, we didn't ask her either. It's our code not really to press someone or ask them questions because you want to be exquisitely sensitive to them feeling like they're being interrogated or like people don't believe them. And this is to remedy decades in which women didn't report because they were worried people didn't believe them. So there's a reason for this. It just is very hard to operate as a journalist in those conditions. It's kind of an irresistible force against an immovable object when two sets of perfectly reasonable principles are at cross purposes to one another, right? Yes. And I think probably the reporter is thinking, this is a really important story. You know, there was this horrible, horrible thing that happened. The university is not really treating it in the correct way. This is a story that needs to be told. On the other hand, if I actually try and verify this story, then I might lose the story altogether. So I, I can see the dilemma. I want to ask you about the impact that the story had and is having now, and how it will be remembered. It was, and I suppose this is kind of a cynical way to look at it, but quite a bonanza for advocates and and those who are trying to call attention to rape culture on campuses and the failings of universities and law enforcement. It couldn't have been more trenchant and attention-getting. No. I mean, one of the reasons this story had such great impact is because the university's subsequent response was to suspend activities in the fraternities for a couple of months until they could investigate. And that's when the story got huge. I mean, that's when you felt like, wow, this one's really going to have an impact. Even people who didn't read the original Rolling Stone story read about that. You know, I'm not sure that even if it turns out that Jackie is a fabulist, if UVA is off the hook, Erdley's description of the rape culture there, even in song at the campus, is not in question. And The administration infrastructure for protecting women and adjudicating cases, which she focused on, is exactly as it was, whether Jackie's story is true or not. Will that all get lost in the uproar of this retraction? Oh, yeah. Not only lost, but reversed. This happened after the Duke rape case, which also turned out to be a fabrication. And in the Duke case, you know, basically they got more trenchant. I mean, everything not only disappeared, but I just heard a story where they gave an award to one of the guys who had been falsely accused. Now, why was he deserving of an award? Because he went to a party where there were strippers. You know, the rape turned out to not have been true, but people get lionized as victims. Of course it disappears. Although the best we can hope for is that now comes a real discussion about sexual violence on campus. 
there is a culture of outlandish drinking, partying, people get in trouble. There's been so many charges at universities. Something is going wrong. Maybe people will figure out exactly what's going wrong and what we can do about it and all the factors that go into it. We don't maybe need this sensationalistic story to get us galvanized. Maybe in that sense, that's the work that it did. The sensationalistic story got every single person to pay attention. And now that we have people's attention, let's explain what's actually going on. It was your instinct to pull the threads, the loose threads of Erdley's reporting that led to this situation. I'm curious as to what your instincts say happens next. My instincts say that we have a while to go before we learn what actually happened. Just like in the Duke case, it's all happening pretty quickly. There's going to be statements from lawyers. There's going to be people who come forward. There's going to be scrutiny of Jackie. And then what I'm hoping is that somebody somewhere comes back with a big story about sexual assault in the wake of all this that says to us, look, here's what's going wrong and here's what we can do to fix it. That's hopeful, isn't it? Yeah, that's hopeful. Yeah. From your lips to God's ears. Exactly. Hannah, thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Hannah Rosen is the founder of Double X. Her pieces on the UVA affair appeared on Slate.com. In March, long before Rolling Stone published about UVA, journalist Caitlin Flanagan wrote a piece in The Atlantic titled The Dark Power of Fraternities, a year-long investigation of Greek houses, reveals their endemic, lurid, and sometimes tragic problems, and a sophisticated system for shifting the blame. It was a gimlet-eyed view, to say the least, of what they call Greek life, and in some ways the precursor element to the ready embrace of Sabrina Erdley's horror story as polemic. Now, with Friday's news, Flanagan is in the unaccustomed position of standing up for the fraternity system. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I want to begin just by asking you where you are right now. Well, I'm currently in Nashville at the closing day of the annual association convention for fraternity and sorority advisors. It includes all of the men at the very most senior level of the national fraternities and includes hundreds of so-called Greek life advisors who are in charge of motivating and to an extent disciplining or attempting to discipline wayward kids in fraternities and sororities. And I had been asked out here to speak about my own essay about fraternities, which came out almost a year ago, and about some deep problems I saw in them. But it's ended up being a lot of conversation about the Rolling Stone essay. Is it fair to assume that three years ago, this particular organization would not have welcomed you with open arms, that you would have been, if not persona non grata, at least regarded with suspicion? Well, I think I was regarded with suspicion. However, I do not believe in any respect that the fraternities in America are run by a cadre of powerful men who have a wink and nudge attitude toward the real horrors that go on on many college campus chapters of fraternities. I think they could be much more aggressive in stopping it. I think there are several things they could do that would cut the problem out by 80%, and they're not willing to do that. But I think they are genuinely open-minded people, and when someone's done some serious research and met them on their own terms and told their side of the story as much as my own side, the room was packed and we spoke very openly in, in the session yesterday. However, in the light of the Rolling Stone piece, as far as keeping a transparency between what goes on in the fraternities and the press, I think it is going to set us back years. I think it has done a grave disservice toward the reform movement of the fraternities. 
in Hannah Rosen's piece, she quotes you as raising a number of red flags about the scenario spun by Sabrina Erdley attributed to the presumed victim, Jackie. You saw allegations that just did not scan for you. Can you tell me what they were? When I very first read the story, I actually believed it because there are deeply entrenched problems at the University of Virginia fraternity system. It was one of the very last major public universities in America to go co-ed. And so when I read that, having researched fraternities as deeply as I have, I just assumed that she'd done a level of reporting. A date party at a fraternity, the very first thing you do is call Greek life and give them the date of the party and say, did that fraternity register a party on that night? I can't tell you there's nothing easier in the world than finding out who's in a fraternity. Fraternities aren't like the Kremlin. Getting into sororities like getting into the Kremlin. You can walk into any fraternity house. <laughs> so I just assumed there was deep levels of reporting. But as I read the story a second and a third and a fourth time, I noticed that, number one, after reading probably close to 100 rape reports, serious rape reports with police reports or criminal convictions or at least civil cases, I'd never once seen ritualized gang rape as an initiation. The gothic scene itself, like something out of the last episode of True Detective, ritualized mm -hmm. and choreographed. Well, I think the real heart of the problem may have come from there was in that particular fraternity house and when I was a senior at UVA in the very early 80s, a freshman woman was gang-raped in that fraternity house by fraternity brothers. And 20 years later, miraculously, one of them wrote her a letter of apology after he joined AA and had to make amends. And there's no statute of limitations for rape in Virginia. And she brought that to the Charlottesville DA, and he served a prison term. And that has become a rightly famous story, a notorious story. And I know that the author of the Rolling Stone piece interviewed that woman, whom I also know, Liz Seguro, for hours over the course of the summer. And I think that case may kind of linger in the imagination around Charlottesville, because that really did happen in that fraternity house. I have to tell you, I literally, I'm sitting here in Nashville. I'm sick to my stomach as we're talking. I've never had this happen to me when I'm reporting, but I really thought we were going to make big changes in fraternity house rape because it's a huge problem, and I'm convinced this has pushed the ball back the other way, and I think we've gone backwards 30 years, and I think the level of devastation that this Rolling Stone report that's now looking to go from a misremembered event to perhaps an actual hoax, uh, what it's going to do for young women survivors, what it's going to do for reforming the industry, I can't even tell you. It's, it's, I'm sick. I'm sick over it. And what's it going to do to you as a journalist whose work often focuses on campus rape? Will you be tarred with the same brush? What Rolling Stone has pushed me into is I have now become someone who is on the side of fraternities and defending fraternities. And I don't focus on college rape. My sole focus is fraternity house rape, which is something I have to know a lot about. So I know this is just an awful thing to have to say, but I think that Unless I'm very honest in saying this is not the norm, this is not how most of these people are, I won't have any credibility. And I think we're going to see a lot of young women who have been raped saying, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I'm not going to be ridiculed. I'm not going to be misbelieved. The Rolling Stone story plays into the worst beliefs, which is that, oh, women lie all the time about rape. College women lie about rape. And they have fantasies about rape. It's, it's, it's reprehensible reporting. It's just sickening. Caitlin, where did you grow up? I grew up in Berkeley, college campus, and my father was very anti-fraternity. So I, I had a bias against fraternities, but I went to college with a big Greek system. I became a sorority member. There's some really good people. 
They're almost like Rotarians, I think, a lot of them. If you think of sort of middle American values in the good sense of that expression that I do have appreciation for, but there's a deep, terrible strain in that industry. And rape is a huge part of it, a huge part of it. And I don't know how I will be able to get this story out as forcefully as I was when I wrote about it in The Atlantic. Rolling Stone has rung a bell that I'll have to unring every time I speak about fraternity rape. Caitlin, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Journalist Caitlin Flanagan is the author of the March 14th Atlantic piece titled The Dark Power of Fraternities. That's it for this special bonus edition of OTM. On the Media is produced by Sarah Abdurkman, Chris Neary, Laura Mayer, Kimmy Regler, Ethan Cheel, Mira Sharma, and Andrew Chug. We had more help from Kasia Mihailovic, and our show was edited this week by executive producer Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Greg Rippin. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week with that special report from the Ebola front lines. I'm Bob Garfield.